Blog Talk Radio. Paleo Hebrew. 
I am your host, your brother, your friend, as always, Tazapa, man. Hope everybody had a good Sabbath, a Shabbat, a good Shabbat, Shabbat, Shabbat Shalom. Um, hope everybody is healthy. Everybody had a good weekend, man. Um, want to send shouts out to our affiliated schools, brothers here in San Antonio, Texas, brothers down in H-Town, brothers in VA, brothers in Rochester, uh, those brothers in ABQ and Albuquerque in the Kirk. And shouts out to uh, Kawakawa down in Guatemala and our new brothers and sisters out in Cali, y'all. And uh, shouts out, man, to the 12 tribes scattered worldwide, man. I hope everybody is holding up, uh, doing good, doing fine in this final captivity, man, that we are waiting on our big brother, Yahweh Shai, who the world knows is Christ to come rescue us from, because we ready to go, man, ready to go. But to get the hell on, man, demonic-ass place. All right, y'all. Anyway, man, so welcome to the show. If it's your first time tuning in, uh, this is Blog Talk Radio. The segment that we do at ISBHPK is entitled Bible Talk, man, where we let the Bible talk, and we bring out uh, biblical facts, and we use secular uh, sources and references to validate what the Bible says, because the Bible is definitely a, definitely a book of validity, man, a book of fact, a book of truth, man. So over the weekend, y'all, um, I was just flipping through the channels uh, on Sunday, man, had a little time to kill, time to regroup, uh, take a breath, if you will, because I'm always busy doing something. But uh, there's a documentary on, I think it's Stars, titled uh, The Game Changed the Game. And it's got a picture of the brother Jalen Brown from the Celtics uh, on, the, on the cover. But, man, whoever put that documentary together, they did a great job, y'all. They really did. They, they really put their spirit into it. A lot of facts uh, went into the documentary. And what it's basically going over, y'all, is the pandemic in 2020 and the lockdown uh, of the whole world and how they reopened the NBA and uh, they put those brothers in the bubble. And it goes into uh, the social arrest that was going on during that time but also it touched on some stuff that I kind of remember vaguely hearing, but I didn't really uh, pay too much attention to, man. But it was talking about how the brother, uh, I forget his first name, but his last name is Cephalosha. He used to play for uh, um, OKC, yeah, the OK uh, City Thunder. He used to play for them, but uh, I forgot what team he was playing for when this incident happened. But the brother was somewhere in New York, 
And and I say brother because he is one of us that was scattered. Even though he grew up in a foreign country, I forget which foreign country he grew up in, but he's definitely a brother, man. And Esau will have people coming and going with their nonsense of identifying or labeling people according to the language or the country that they're from and not their origin. We got we to gotta equip ourselves on history, biblical history. You are what your father is, man. This is like they was calling Tony Parker uh, the French basketball player. That nigga ain't French. That nigga daddy's from Chicago. He's a nigga. No, he does not have the nigga experience because he grew up in Paris, France, but he's, in fact, a nigga. But anyway, don't y'all let them smoke, smoking mirrors and smoke screens fool y'all, man. Y'all dig a little bit deeper. Anyway, getting back to my, my point, the brother Cephalosha was in New York. Uh, he was doing some in New York. Walking the street, and he was in a, a less desirable neighborhood area, which you might call an urban <laughs> community, and the cops stopped him, man. They stopped him like they stopped us all for no apparent damn reason other than just for uh, it's and giggles, you know. And he ends up getting into a confrontation with these officers, and they um, injured the brother. I forgot what injuries he had, but they injured him so much so that he couldn't even finish his season. And he ended up taking them to court, man. I believe he won his court battle. But this stuff was going on. I believe this happened maybe prior to the uh, the bubble and all the other stuff, but it was leading up to it because Cephalosha, he said he didn't go. He didn't want to go to the bubble because he was like, no, nah, man. I ain't messing with them, you know, and rightly so, rightly so, because that experience opened his eyes to where he could see who his real enemy was, man, and how he really felt about this country, you know. It's like Ali said, man, still a nigga. It it don't matter where we go, what realm we're in, we're still all going to be looked at as niggas, straight up, man. They got, like most deaf said, they got world nigger laws. If you a nigger, you're going to be treated as such globally. Anyway, the brother didn't go to the bubble, but he shared his experience in his documentary. Also, there was another brother played for the uh, played for Milwaukee. And this brother went to Walgreens uh, late at night and he was parked illegally in the handicap zone. The brother in the Benz, I believe it was a white Mercedes Benz he was in, he parked illegal, cops roll up, see him parked illegal, start messing with him. And it leads into an altercation, and they rough the brother up, whoop the brother's ass. And the brother ends up in the bubble, and they show the brother in the bubble with all these damn bruises and shit. I'm sorry, excuse me. I'm trying to <laughs> be politically correct. All these bruises and stuff on his face. Sorry about the profanity, y'all, because I know a lot of people, they hear some profanity and it's like, ah, oh, how you teaching the Bible and you cussing? It turned a lot of people off, so let me stop cussing. 
But I'm just trying to express what I'm feeling so y'all could uh, pay attention. Give some of your time to this documentary, man, so you can see how this place really feels about us. Anyway, the brother ends up in the bubble with all these bruises and stuff on him. And uh, it goes into how the players protested and they wasn't going to play, man. They wasn't going to play. They had a meeting. Uh, It just goes deep into it, man. But it was, like I said, a great documentary. It was put together really well, but it had the same nonsense that we always do in it, which was the vote. That was the conclusion of the whole damn thing. Oh, let's open up poll stations. Let's use uh, stadiums as uh, uh, voting polls. You know the definition for insanity is doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. That's the definition for insanity, and that's what our people are, in fact, are. We are insane, man, because we keep talking about damn voting like that's something we never tried. We've tried everything, y'all. we tried black economics, Wall Street, uh, Tulsa, and countless other communities that were thriving monetarily. We tried that already. We tried voting already. Y'all remember the Civil Rights era? That's all that damn, uh, the dogs getting sick on us, the fire hoses, the beatings getting spit, spit on, the lynchings, the damn church bombing. And all that came out of that was, y'all got to go vote. Haven't our people realized by now that voting is not going to help us? For all the voting that we've done, hell, we've had a so-called black president in office, and look at the condition of our people. We're still in the same rut. Because I'm looking at this documentary, and I think it's from 2021, 2022, something like that. And I'm looking at the current events that's going on. These brothers were protesting for innocent black people being killed by police. They were protesting for that cause. It had George Floyd on there. It had uh, all, you know, the countless names of, of, of all black people that have been killed by the hands of police. I'm not trying to downplay it, but it's, it's almost to the, to, the, to the point, man. We just, we expect that. It's, it's, uh, it's normal. It's, it's a normal part of life. But I'm saying all this to say that I'm looking at today in this age, in the times we're living in now, and hell, they still do the same thing. Three little boys just got shot. One of them got shot in the face. And I covered two of these stories. Arkaya told me about another one that I didn't know of. It happened somewhere in Missouri. And I thought she was talking about the same thing I was talking about. But it was two different incidents that happened, two different places, two different little, little black boys, man. This stuff is still going on. A myth of you voting, and look, look what they're doing now. They're, everybody's rearing up for them voting season again, voting registration again. Come on, man, stop! How long are we gonna be idiots? That is not gonna help us. The only thing that's gonna help us is us knowing who we are as a people, 
knowing what our purpose is and who our God is, and keeping the laws, statutes, and commandments of this book that we call the Bible, and keeping the principles of Christ. It's the only thing that's going to save us. But niggas think, no, that's too simple. (laughs) No, it's got to be something more complicated. No, it's literally that simple. And when I say simple, I'm not trying to downplay the Bible at all, because the Bible is simple, but the, 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 the practice of the Bible, the, uh, the practice of the Bible is hard. <laughs> it's simple, but putting it into practice is hard. But our people think, oh, it can't be that simple. It's got to be something more complicated, like standing in a damn line all day to vote, like going out of your way to rally at damn Black Lives Matters rallies or something like that. I don't know. Our people tripping, man. Anyway, I got on the soapbox a little early, man. Let me uh, rewind it and go with the format of the show. So let's get uh, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So this is the prayer we need to be sending up on a daily, y'all. Christ's kingdom will come so we can get the hell on up out of this place, man. Let's get Psalms chapter 118 and verse 24. This is the day which the Lord had made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. So this is the, the saying, the slogan, the prayer we need to keep in our mentals as we have to be here to navigate through this wicked place. So good, bad, happy, sad, the most I brought you through it. I brought you to it. He's going to bring you through it, and you'll come out better on the other side because of it, man. So as y'all notice by now, Hasadai is not joining me anymore. She got a job. She got another job. So, uh, yeah, y'all, y'all got me. Anyway, um, the first article I want to get to is from CNN.com. The little mermaid. <laughs> the little mermaid taints in China and South Korea amidst racial backlash from some viewers. When would our people realize that they really hate us, man? They have a love relationship, I mean, a love-hate relationship with black people. And I'm talking about our uh, white counterparts, really red counterparts, we loosely refer to as white. They hate us, the love-hate relationship they have with us. Like I said last show, man, everybody want to be black, but nobody wants the black experience. This is the black experience, to be hated. Going on with the article, it says, Hong Kong Soul, CNN. The Little Mermaid has bombed 
with moviegoers in China and South Korea amidst racial critiques in some quarters over the casting of black actress Haley Bailey as main character Ariel. Disney's live-action remarks has made only $3.6 million in mainland China since opening there on May 26th, according to Box Office Mojo. So these people are mad because this sister, Haley Bailey, uh, was the main character. Ain't this something, man? They mad because you got a nigga playing the main role in the, in the movie, I guess the Little Mermaid uh, lead was traditionally Edomite or Chinese or some crap. I don't know. I ain't even familiar with the uh, storyline or that narrative. I ain't familiar with it. But they're upset about this. So I guess niggas need to start petitioning or, hell, go back and petition Tom Cruise playing The Last Samurai. I'm sorry. Chinese people need, or Japanese people need to go back and petition. Tom Cruise playing The Last Samurai. I ain't heard him say nothing about that. Nothing. I ain't heard a little slant eye say nothing when he played The Last Samurai. Or what about seven years in Tibet when they had, uh, what's the dude's name? Brad Pitt playing that. I ain't heard the Tibet people say nothing about that. But what about when Brad Pitt played the Mexican? I didn't hear them say nothing. I didn't hear uh, uh speaking brother say nothing about him playing the Mexican as a white boy, as a gringo, as a as a, a weta. <laughs> I ain't hear them a uh, weto. I ain't hear them saying nothing about that. I didn't hear um uh, who's that? Yeah, what about all the biblical movies where they had white people? I ain't hear nobody complaining. I ain't hear niggas complaining about the Passion of the Christ that uh, Mel Gibson put together, all white cast. I think they had a couple of Arabs in there too, <laughs> just to try to give us some geographical uh, identity, truths, but no cigar. So they're mad about this movie right here, man. Like I told you, man, the world hates us. They really do. So let me read on. It says um, it brought in just 19.5 million uh, yuan, 2.7 million in the first five days. So this is in China. Compared with 142 million uh, yuan, nearly 20 million for Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse in the first five days of that film's opening, according to Chinese box office tracker uh, at the at the, uh, end data. So, yeah, this was in China. All right, so let me skip down. It says the cold reception. Globally, the film has now brought in an estimated three uh, 327, 327 million, with 186 million of of that coming domestically, and 141 million driven by international audiences, according to ComSource. China, the world's second largest box office, has contributed a negligible amount. 
fans in mainland China have shared their objections to the movie online, mainly expressing disappointment with Bailey's casting. So this movie did poorly, like I said, all because you got a nigga playing the main role. Hey, you know they mad over uh, Netflix uh, docu drama, uh, drama series they did uh, on Cleopatra. They saying that uh, she she wasn't black, and they they write about that. Matter of fact, I'm gonna cover that too. I'm going to cover not this segment. Uh, I believe I might do that on Thursday, Mishaba, since Mishaba has blessed me with another day. Um, where was I going to go, though? Yeah, before I lose my train of thought, I'm talking too much. Let's get Matthew chapter 10 and verse 22. Wow. Told us this, man. Christ told us that we were going to be hated. This is biblical, man. This was already prophesied by your house shot. Matthew 10, verse 22. And it reads, it says, And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that endureth to the end shall be saved. Your house shot told us we were going to be hated by all these nations, man. By all these men, all these peoples. This is nothing new, man. You know, and what I really liked about the documentary I was talking about earlier, y'all, this brother said something that was so profound in the documentary, man. I had to stop it and rewind it just to hear the brother say it again because he said it with so much passion and so much truth behind it. He said, man, we the only MF people that don't know where the F we come from. He said this. He said, we are the only race that don't know where the F we come from. He said this, and it's so true, man. Our people really don't know. But like the scriptures tell us in Daniel, that it was going to be a confusion of faces, as it is this day. All right, the next article I got for y'all, this one's a little more deeper. I'm spending a little bit more time on this one, y'all. This is from NPR, Federal Indian Boarding School still exists, but what's inside may be surprising. So it's talking about the boarding schools that was started um, back in the 19th century um, that sent our Native brothers, who we loosely refer to as Indians, to damn boarding schools where they were dehumanized, and de-Indianized, if that's even the word, that's what they were really doing to the brothers and sisters that was there. And I've brought this up before, man. A brother said that the first thing they would do was to cut your hair off. And we know that the natives are known for their long, pretty hair, man. Long, pretty hair and long, kinky hair, as I'm going to bring out in this segment. For y'all just tuning in, man, I do about an hour of news, current events, soapbox, and then I get into the topic, y'all. So continuing on with this uh, article, it says, on a hot afternoon last summer, Riverside Indian School drew a crowd from all over Oklahoma. Remember this in Oklahoma, y'all. 
Elders and family members drove hours to pile into the residential school gymnasium. They filled the space with rows of chairs and stuffed the bleachers up to the rafters. But when the meeting was called to order, everyone was silent. Facing the busloads of tribal citizens were U.S. Secretary of the Interior Deb Halen and Assistant Secretary and Assistant Secretary Brian Newland. They traveled from Washington to listen for, a long, for as long as people wanted to speak. The subject at hand, the very place they were sitting, the gym now shines with new equipment and has a wall dedicated to the tribes of Riverside, a symbol of the new Riverside, one with a majority Native staff and an emphasis on cultural practices. For many of the people here, Riverside Indian School was once a waking nightmare. On the first to speak, one of the first to speak was an 85-year-old man with short, salt and pepper hair, who used a walker to study himself. Donald Nickany attended the school more than 60 years ago. And this is his quote. It was 12 years of hell, he told the officials. You see this? Those Indian boarding schools were not pleasant, man. He recounted for Halen and Newland how, when he first arrived at the school, the staff treated him like a prisoner. That's what these schools were. The moment I landed there, they took me downstairs, took all my clothes off, and threw a bunch of green stuff all over me, uh, Nikoni says, or Nikoni says. Now, the green stuff was probably a lie, because I believe that's what they used to do. He just, the same thing they did, to uh, the tribe of Judah or the southern kingdom that came over here in slave ships. I'm going to get to that in a minute. He described his time here as an experience marked by abuse, both emotional and physical, and said that certain teachers would routinely beat students for acting up or just for speaking their own language, their native tongue, uh, whatever the uh, tribal language was mixed with the dialect of Hebrew. Proved that on countless other classes. Anyway, the experiences were so awful that when one of the buildings at Riverside, uh, known as Kiowa Lodge, burned down, he stood by and cheered. I laughed when they tore it down. This was his quote. Riverside sits pierced along the hill overlooking the uh, Wasita River in Akadoka, the very heart of Indian country in southwest Oklahoma. This is Caldo, Delaware, and Wichita land. So these are all tribes. Now, coincidentally, or not a coincidence, is how that these tribes are actual states or cities. Y'all remember, y'all remember uh, what Delaware is a state. But y'all see how Esau is not original and how Delaware is the name of actual Indian tribe. It says, and Wichita. So Wichita is the name of actual Indian tribe. You know, the what they got a city called Wichita, uh, and I think it's Kansas. Then they have Wichita Falls uh, here in Texas. Yeah, 
so this land is still named after the inhabitants that dwelled here hundreds of years ago. Our ancestors uh, roughly referred to as the ten tribes or the nine and a half tribes. All right, we know. The school opened its doors in 1871 and is one of four all off-reservation boarding schools still operating in the U.S. today. Uh, so they kept some of these boarding schools open, as you can see. They should have tore that crap down. You see the, the irony of Esau, man, to add uh, insult to injury? Why not just tear this crap down? No, we're going to renovate it, and now we're going to celebrate Indian culture. So y'all once hated it, was trying to get it up out of our spirits, but now y'all gonna celebrate, bastards. Oklahoma at one time had the highest number of federal Indian boarding schools, more than 80, according to the Na the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition. Also uh, a coalition. So. Why I keep bringing up uh, Oklahoma, emphasizing Oklahoma, y'all, because y'all have to go back into history and do your research on what's called the Trail of Tears, also referred to as the Indian Removal Act, sponsored by Andrew Jackson, that bastard that's on the $20 bill, I believe it is. His saying was... Um, what did he say? I forget the quote. But I know their slogan was, um, destroy the Indian and save the man. That's why they put uh, the tribes of Gad and Reuben in these Indian boarding schools. And this national coalition, coalition let me get a little bit on this. <clears throat> See, we're the only people that need stuff like this, man. It says, uh, the devastating impact of boarding school experiences on Native American individuals, families, communities, and tribal nations has had far-reaching consequences in the social, emotional, spiritual, and cultural realms today. These effects continue to reverberate through generations. It is essential to address and heal the intergenerational trauma caused by these experiences. The time to start this healing process is now. And this is what's known as post-traumatic stress disorder. Because, And the reason I'm bringing that out is because you have a lot of brothers and sisters who say, well, them ain't our people. Those Native Americans, and you even have some of them. I remember seeing a lot of them when the brothers was at uh, Washington, D.C., it was some Indians up there that were saying, no, we're not uh, Hebrew Israelites, we're tribal, we're this, or whatever. Ignorance, man. Let me read on. It says, the truth about the U.S. Indian boarding school policy has been excluded from history books, and it is uncertain how many students were subject to it. Experts estimate that approximately 500 government-funded government Indian day and boarding schools operated in the United States during the 19th and 20th centuries. Indigenous children were forcibly, forcibly taken from their families 
by government agents and sent hundreds of miles away to these schools. What does this sound like? Sound like the slave trade to me. Sounds like channel slavery to me. If they spoke their native languages, they were punished with beatings, starvation, and other forms of abuse. Huh, you don't say, sound like roots. When the dude got the whip and, and, and Kuta Kente was tied to the tree, he was beating the hell out of him on his back with that whip. What's your name? Kuta. Kuta Kente. Nah, boy, your name is Toby. This is what it sounds like to me. Can't y'all see that the, the so-called black man's plight is the same plight as our so-called Indian or Native American brothers? Reading on, it says, truth, healing, justice, uh, reconciliation. These words carry different meanings for Americans today, uh, like reparations, right? Depending on what side of history you hail from. If you're Native American, you know that the justice in Indian county or country cannot be fully realized without a majority shift in our national narrative, namely that the U.S. has never accepted responsibility for its boarding school experiment. They experimented on people. You don't say kind of like the projects that they put throughout all the urban cities in the United States, globally anyway, they're everywhere. Even in uh, third world countries, you have things known as projects. A project is an experiment. So these boarding schools were experiments. It says the forced removal of our children, the prohibition of our language and culture, and the violation of our human, civil, and indigenous rights, man. No doubt. So let's get Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 32, man, for you Negro, uh, Negro, Negroes only peoples, man. Y'all some damn idiots. I love you, brothers, man. I do. But y'all some really some idiots who don't know history, who, who don't care to read up on things. You're just going by your damn emotions and what you was taught by Esau. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 28. In verse uh, 32, and it reads, it says, Thy sons and thy daughters shall be given unto another people. Hmm, you don't say. We just read this. This is what happened to who? So-called Native Americans. Their children were snatched away from them and given to who? To Esau. It says, and thy eyes shall look and fail with longing for them all the day long, and there shall be no might in thine hand, man. This is definitely referring to these brothers and sisters, as well as us, man. I'm, I can't even really say us because I'm Reuben, <laughs> so-called Native American. But this is referring to the southern kingdom also. Let me read on. It says, The fruit of thy land, and thy labors, which shall, uh, sorry, let me read again, verse 33. The fruit of thy land and all thy labors shall a nation which thou knowest not eat up. You see, and this is what 
Whitey did, man, when he got Indian land. He made all the Indian land, specifically in the Midwest, the breadbasket of his empire. And thou shalt be only oppressed always, so that thou shalt be mad for the sight of thine eyes, which thou shalt see. And they wonder why the so-called Native Americans, man, why they drink so much, why they're heavily intoxicated. Look at all the trauma they experience, man. And they're trying to escape the reality. And it's no different than the southern kingdom. We smoking crack and doing heroin, and we alcoholics too. The only difference is we're spread out. But you can see Gad and Ruben's uh, flaws and shortcomings and their addictions because they're grouped together in one spot. Anyway, man, let's get uh, the book, The Aztec. And I brought this out before, man. Me and uh, Sapar, by our support, did a show dealing with the nine and a half and how they are the people of the book. All right, so this book, and we did use this one, The Aztec. The Aztec, and this is by, who wrote this? By Friar Diego Durant. So we're going to go to page three, y'all. Let's get some proofs that they are people. It says, in order to discuss the real and truthful accounts of the origin and beginnings of these Indian nations, so mysterious and remote to us, and to discover the real truth about them, some divine revelation of spirit of God would be needed, no doubt, the Bible. However, lacking this, it will be necessary to make conjectures and reach conclusions through the many proofs that these people give us with their strange ways and manner of, con of conduct and their lowly conversations. So like that of the Hebrews. Y'all hear that? Hebrews. Because of their nature, we could almost affirm that they are Jews and Hebrew peoples. For a second, y'all. All right, Nahar, I got that. Let me see if I can pull this up. This is the Aztec. The... Ooh, I can't make that out right there. Oh, it says their color vary from dark to light brown. What book is this on? Is it? Yeah, I think that it is the Aztec. All right, let me finish reading this. It says, in the water for that, it says, and I believe that I would not be committing a great error if I were to state this fact. Considering their way of life, their ceremonies, their rites and superstitions, their omens, and the and false dealings so related to and characteristic of their I'm sorry, let me read it again. Their omens and false dealings so related and characteristic of those of the Jews. Let's 
AI people, man. It says, the Holy Scripture is witness of this, and we shall use it as our testimony. You hear what this dude is saying? The Holy Scripture is witness to this, and it's the testimony. It says, as proof of this opinion, we know that these newly arrived nations and Indian people coming from strange and remote regions made a long and tedious journey until they came to take possession of this country. And they passed by many years in reaching this place. One gathers this from the traditions and paintings and from talking to the old people. There are many people who tell fables. Some say that the Indians were born of spring water. Others say that they were born of caves or that their race is that of the gods, all of which is clearly legend and shows that they themselves are ignorant of their origin and beginnings. They always profess to have come from strange lands and have found this depicted in their ancient painting manuscripts where they portray the great periods of hunger, thirst, and nakedness with innumerable afflictions that they suffer until they reach this country and settle it in. Now, it talks about the thirst and the nakedness. Now, watch this, man. Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 48. Shall thou serve thy enemies? which the Lord shall sin against thee in hunger and in thirst and in nakedness and in one of all things. And he shall put a yoke of iron upon thy neck until he have destroyed thee. Does this sound familiar? These curses the Most High put on his people, the Israelites, and what's, what's really breadcrumbs that can help you identify who the most highest chosen people are, verse 46, trip off of this, and they shall be, meaning the curses, and they shall be upon thee for a sign and for a wonder and upon thy seed forever. So if you want to know, who God's chosen people are, you got to look for the signs. And these are the signs. Your enemy, uh, you having to go to your enemy for one of all things, for hunger, thirst, and nakedness, which we're reading out of the Aztec. This happened to the Aztec people. Let me read it again. Going back to the book. They always profess to have come from strange lands and have found this depicted in their ancient painting manuscripts where they portray the great periods of hunger, thirst, and nakedness with innumerable afflictions that they suffer until they reach this country and settle in it. So before we even got here, and even after we got here, the same thing. Reading on, it says, Because of all these things, my suspicions are confirmed that these natives are part of the ten tribes of Israel, which Solomonessar, king of, of the Assyrians, captured and took to Assyria in the time of Hosea, king of Israel. 
and in the time of Ezekiel, king of Jerusalem, as can be read in the fourth book of Kings. Chapter, I'm not good with Roman numbers, y'all, I'm sorry. Where one finds that Israel was carried out of its own land to Assyria. It also says that this remote and distant country had never been inhibited before, inhabited before. There was a long and tedious journey of a year and a half to the region where today are found these people of the islands and the mainland toward the west beyond the sea. Other evidence from, from found in the Holy Writ that can be uh, cited to prove this idea is that God through Hosea had promised to multiply these people like the sands of the sea. So what he's citing here in this paragraph, he's actually citing Second Ezra chapter 13 is what he's citing, y'all. So he calls it the book of Kings, but it's actually Second Ezra. Let me go there. Second Ezra chapter thirteen. And I'm gonna start at verse forty. It says, Those are the ten tribes which were carried away prisoners out of their own land in the time of Hosea, the king. This is Hosea, Hosea, whom Shalomalesa, the king of Assyria, led away captive, and he carried them over the waters, and so came they into another land. So this is talking about the northern kingdom when they were took into captivity under the Assyrians, y'all. Most high kicked us out of the land. He was sick of us. Verse 41. But they took this counsel among themselves that they would leave the multitude of the heathen. And this happened around 722 B.C. It says, and go forth into a further country where never mankind dwelt, that they might keep their statues, which they never kept in their own land, and they entered into the Euphrates by the narrow, narrow passages of the river. What's fascinating about the Bible, y'all, is that you can go to a map and trace the route that it say that they took to get over here. And you will come to the same conclusion as this fire came to, as well as many other historians who are saying or who have said the exact same thing. Verse 44, for the Most High did shoot signs for them, and hell stood the flood till they were passed over. For though that country had, uh, uh, yeah, for through that country, there was a great way to go. Namely, of a year and a half, like the dude cites in this book I'm reading, the Aztec, in the same region is called Ashereth, which means newfound land, y'all. Then dwelt they there until the latter times, meaning what? Our people are still here. And now when they shall begin to come. Our people are still here, but this is what the author of this book, this is what the source that he gave to, for him to come to his conclusion. Let me read it again. It says, because of these things, my suspicions are confirmed that these natives are part of the ten tribes of Israel, which Shalom 
king of Assyria, captured and took to Assyria in the time of Hosea, king of Israel, and in the time of Ezekiel, king of Jerusalem, as can be read in the fourth book of Kings, chapter whatever this is, where, no, where one finds that Israel was carried out of its own land to Assyria. Like I told y'all, he got the book and the chapters wrong. He's really citing Second Ezra in the Apocrypha, the 13th chapter. I just read that. It also says that this remote and distant country had never been inhibited or inhabited before. There was a long and tedious journey of a year and a half to the region where today are found these people of the islands and the mainland toward the west beyond the seas. Other evidence found in the Holy Writ that can be cited to prove this idea is that God through Hosea or Hosea had promised to multiply these people like the sands of the sea. And the fact that they had taken possessions of the world shows clearly and manifestly how great was this uh, multiplication. And you can read that, and I think it's Hosea chapter 1 and verse 10. He talks about us being uh, as the sands of the sea. It says, but leaving the biblical text and coming to what all of us saw in this country. So he said, aside from the biblical historical counts of the uh, the ten tribes or the nine and a half tribes being the indigenous people of this country. He says, besides that, a thing that amazes us was the number of people found here. The It was people already here. <laughs> Christopher Columbus ain't discovered nothing. It says, this was observed by the Spaniards who came early to this country before the great plague when so many people died that not even a third of the Indians who had existed here survived. And this does not include, listen to this, the innumerable men, women, and children who have been killed by the Spaniards during the conquest a few years earlier, also known as the conquest of America, the conquistadors or the conquerors came over here and killed our people off with the sword and disease, their biological warfare by way of syphilis, smallpox, and all the other uh, disgusting European diseases that they brought over here with them. So let me get another source on dealing with the same topic, y'all. Uh, matter of fact, let me get this first, because it talked about how we came over here and during this time, the only means of travel that people had was ships. So let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, and let's read verse 68. It says, And the Lord shall bring thee into Egypt again. Now, Egypt represents captivity. You can read that in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. It says, read it again, Deuteronomy 28, verse 68. And the Lord shall bring thee into Egypt again, meaning a second time, or into bondage or captivity again. The first time the Israelites went into captivity in Egypt, we walked in there. It tells us in the book of Genesis that uh, Jacob went into Egypt with 70 souls, meaning his relatives that were with him, his offsprings that came from his loins. 
So the first time we went to Egypt, we walked there. The second time we uh, were coming into bondage was going to be how with ships. And going back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 68, read it again from the top. And the Lord shall bring thee into Egypt again, second time, with ships. And how do our brothers and sisters get over here, our so-called native uh, indigenous people of this place, with ships? Whether it was by our own, uh, on our own behalf, us coming over here, getting away from uh, the Middle East, or what they call the Middle East, getting away from uh, those places that Shalom and Nessa had sent us, or us coming over here on cargo slave ships. I'm going to prove that in a minute with this other book. It says, um, read it again from the top. It says, and the Lord shall bring thee into Egypt again with ships by the way whereof I spake unto thee. Thou shalt see it no more again. See what? Our homeland. So what does the indigenous people of this country have in common with the so-called black people and Caribbean people? We ain't seen our homeland. So we got here. We all got the same story. We don't know where we come from. It says, And there ye shall be sold unto your enemies for bondmen and bondwomen, and no man shall buy you, meaning no man shall save you. So did this happen? You damn right it happened. So let me get this other book, man, just to prove it. This book is titled Black Indians. It's titled Black Indians, written by uh, William Lauren Katz. Uh a hidden heritage. So let me read uh, page uh, two, I think it is. Damn, I got to hurry up and run out of time. Yeah, let me let me start at page two. I'm going to read parts of this. Uh, is that page two? No, I'm tripping. Page six. Man, do I want to read all of this? All right, let me just get it. This is page three. Black Indians, question mark. The very words make most people shake their heads in disbelief or smile at what appears to be a joke because they don't believe that uh, black people is Indians, man. It says uh, a play on words. No one remembers any such person in a school text, history book, or Western novel. None ever appeared. Yet they lived and roamed all over the Americas. Their story began with the first European landing in the New World, reaching from New England to Brazil and continues today. Man, come on. The indigenous people are also black people. All the way down to Brazil. I'm going to finish reading. It says, the number of Afro-Americans with an, in, with an Indian ancestor was once estimated. Oh, man. Listen to this. Let me read it again. <clears throat> the number of Afro-Americans 
with an Indian ancestor was once estimated at about one-third of the total. <laughs> In Latin America, the percentage is much higher. Come on, man. All right, man. Let me go to page six, the same book, y'all. It says, though it is unfamiliar terrain, I have chosen to begin this story at the beginning with the earliest foreign landings in the Western Hemisphere. This has two advantages. It establishes a black Indian participation in a democratic movement years, decades, or centuries before the American Revolution. It also demonstrates that dark people ignored the boundaries drawn by Europeans in their move from one country to another in search of liberty, justice, or a better life. This unknown American story is deeply rooted in the human currents that shaped our early life. Two parallel institutions joined to create black Indians the seizure and mistreatment of Indians and their lands and the enslavement of Africans, are y'all hearing this, in their conquest of the New World, Europeans were determined to use both dark peoples. Ten whites are not enough to watch one Negro, said a Portuguese slave master living in Brazil. <laughs> are y'all listening? This is why I saw me niggas in Brazil in nine, I'm sorry, in seventeen thirty five. This is when he made the statement. To protect slavery and prevent resistance, Europeans developed brutal methods of controlling and degrading racial policies. These I'm sorry, there is evidence that European genocidal attacks on Indians in the New World may have an additional explanation besides land, hunger, and greed. So listen to this. It's saying this, there's a reason why they was treating these people so bad. This is the reason. Perhaps another reason for eliminating Indians was to prevent their alliance with Africans. Because we're the same people, man. Colonial Europeans left evidence uh, of plenty that this was often an overriding fear. They scared us united. No different than they still do this day and age, man. This is why they have to keep us divided and keep us ignorant of who we are, man, so we can keep fighting and bickering amongst one another because we're stronger as a nation, man. All right, uh, page 26, y'all. It says, for the people of the Americas, the, uh, I'm sorry, let me read it again. It says, it begins with Columbus. For the people of the Americas, the arrival of Columbus was hardly a blessing. On his first day, October 12, 1492, the explorer wrote in his diary, I took some of the natives by force. He later found the original inhabitants to be tactical, peaceable, and concluded, there is not in the world a better nation. This is what Columbus said. Now watch this. 
His response as a European was to say that Indians must be made to work. Huh? But I thought that they, they weren't slaves. It says, and adopt our ways. So this was Hellenizing in the American sense. The Christopher Columbus, whose unique seamanship and courage had opened the Americas to European penetration, also began the transatlantic slave trade. See, it didn't start in 1619, y'all. It says, he started by shipping 10 chains. Let me read it again. I know my accent be throwing people off sometimes. He started by shipping 10 chain Arawak men. Arawak is a tribe, a so-called Indian tribe. Arawak men and women to Seville, Spain. Y'all see this? You know, the most high is going to bring us in captivity, how? With ships. This happened a thousand times over. It says, he wrote enthusiastically to King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella about the business possibilities. From here, this is a quote, from here in the name of the blessed trinity, so they did this all in the name of religion, we can send all the slaves that can be sold. What kind of slaves were they? I just read it, y'all. They were Indian slaves that Columbus encountered on his voyage over here to the Americas, which we know that he ended up in the Caribbean. And who in the Caribbean? I'm going to read this. Watch this. When he loaded 1,100 Taino men and women aboard for Spanish ships. Who are the Taino the Tahino Indians. Come on, man. The crowding and the stormy Atlantic crossing took a fearful toll. 300 survived. Thought of 1,100 Tahino Indian slaves he took back to Spain, it says only 300 survived. It says, but Columbus and Spain had decided to continue the profitable slave trade from the Americas. Seville became the slave capital of Spain. Come on, y'all. Can't y'all see this? (laughs) The so-called Indians, Native Americans, they are people, man. They're from the nation of Israel, man. Like I said, we loosely refer to them as the nine and a half or the ten tribes of the northern kingdom, man. So, counts, man, you can't argue with this. Anyway, y'all, I'm finishing up uh, from the news, and I'm going to move in, uh, move on to the class topic at hand. I'm just going to take a brief intermission, y'all, before I dive into this uh, second segment of uh, Bible Talk. So I'll be back with y'all on the other side of this intermission, y'all. I'll be right back.
right, y'all, we are back. We are back. So what I've been covering, y'all, um, if you're unfamiliar with this um, sequence of classes that I've been doing, man, entitled Never Wax Pale, what I'm attempting to do is to give the history around uh, 722 B.C. and then work my way down to the southern kingdom and the captivities that the southern kingdom went into because all of Israel did not go into the same captivities, y'all. Uh, the northern kingdom went into that captivity under the Assyrians by where shall Manasseh, but the southern kingdom actually went into three uh, different captivities, and that would be the Babylonian captivity around 586 B.C., the Persian uh captivity, which is around 5, uh, 538, 538 BC, and the Greek uh, captivity, which had around 333 BC on the Alexander, actually it was four, and then the Roman captivity, um, and I don't have years for that, but I'm going to get into this class. The Roman captivities under the Romans, um, what you call them, the last class that we did, I was covering um, the rebellion, and it led us up to the Hasmonean dynasty, and I read a little bit about what they did and how they Hellenized themselves and basically became like the Greeks, y'all, <clears throat> and then started fighting for power and um, – they actually killed off this dude, uh, what's his name? Yeah, Alexander Janus killed off his, uh, off, his uh, not offspring, but his siblings, and um, killed his, his mama. So I'm going to pick up in the Homans Bible Atlas, y'all, page 187, just as a quick refresh, and then it's actually leading into, the, into today's class. So it says, the end of independence the widow of Janus, so this is Alexander Janus, uh, John Hycranus' uh, lineage, this is the Hasmonean dynasty that we're dealing with, y'all, from the Maccabees. It says the widow of Janus, uh, Salome, Salome, Alexandria, assumed civil authority upon her husband's death and reigned nine years, 76 to 67 B.C., her eldest son, Hycranus II, assumed the role of high priest. Under Salome's leadership, the Pharisees rose to power in the Sanhedrin. So this is when the Pharisees rose to power, and once again, talking about the Sanhedrin or the 70 elders, the same uh, organization or uh, clique, tribe or gathering of people that put together the Septuagint, it says later Jewish literature describes Salome's reign as extraordinary, prosperous, reflecting the Talmud's bias towards the Pharisees. However, upon Salome's death, her younger son, Artabulus II, with support from the Sadducees, Challenge the challenge the right of Hycranus the second to rule. The Pharisees supported Hycanus 
in the ensuing civil war. So you had the Pharisees that were supporting Hyrcanus, uh the second, and then you had the uh the the uh ooh, yeah, the Pharisees supported him, but the the Sadducees supported Archibutus the second. So you had a civil war that was going on amongst our people. And once again, this is talking about the Hasmonean dynasty. Hyrcanus was the weaker of the two brothers, although he was high priest. After a military defeat, he was ready to surrender his cause when an Idumean governor, listen to this, y'all, an Idumean governor, Tipiter, intervene on his behalf. All right, now I went over this before, but I'm going to get it. In case you forgot, it's Idumean governor. So these terms are very important. You got to look them up, y'all. So uh, let's go to the Zondervan now, page 339. Find out, okay, what does Idumean mean? So Zondervan, Compact Bible Dictionary. What did I say? 239. Idumia, pertaining to Edom. So it's pertaining to Edom. It says Greek and Roman name for Edom. Then it says see Edom. Okay. So we find out that Idumia pertains to Edom. It's a Greek and Roman name for Edom. And it says to see Edom. Let's find out who the hell is Edom. All right. Edom. It says Edomites. The nation and its people who were the descendants of Esau. He founded the country, so his name is equated with Edom. All right, so I see this. So we look up Idumian, because it said that this dude, uh, Antipater, was an Idumian, we found out that Idumian was a name that the Greeks and the Romans used to identify these people called Edom. And we find out that these Edoms or Edomites, they descended from this dude named Esau. Now let's go to the Bible. Let's see who Esau is. All right. Let's go Genesis 36, y'all. So here at Bible Talk, we let the Bible talk, man. We definitely prove all things. So we don't leave anything to speculation. We don't just give you our opinion and state it as fact for you to run with it. We prove it. All right, so let's go to Genesis 36, and we're going to read verse 1. And we're going here to find out who Esau is. Genesis 36, verse 1, and it reads, now, these are the generations of Esau, who is Edom. So this goes right along what we just read out of the Zonovan Bible Dictionary, that the Edomites descended from this dude called Esau. Let's jump down to verse 8 now. It says, Thus dwelt Esau in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. Which the Zonovan Bible Dictionary is true. Verse 9. And these are the generations of Esau. The father of the Edomites in Mount Seir. So we find out that this dude Esau, 
had a whole people that came from him, a whole nation that came from him. And this was prophesied in the book of Genesis, chapter 25. Let's go there. Let's stay on topic. So Genesis chapter 25 and verse 25, and this gives us the birth of this dude and some distinct characteristics. Listen to this, y'all. And the first came out red, all over like a hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. So what's the characteristic of this dude named Esau? This is him being born. He was red. All right? The only people on the face of the globe that's red is who we loosely refer to as the so-called white man. When he's happy, what color he turned? Red. When he's angry, red. Sad, red. He calls himself a redneck or red-blooded American. This is who he's talking about. All right? This is from his birth. And you got to remember that he was a twin. So two babies came out. That's why it says the first came out red all over like a hairy garment. And the other distinction it gives us about this dude is he's hairy. You know, the same dude that shaves in the morning, 5 o'clock, he has what's known as a 5 o'clock shadow. The cat that has all the hair all over his back, look like a damn uh, uh, wolf man, or the original caveman, the Neanderthal. That's him. That's who he's talking about. All right, verse 26. And after that came his brother out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob. Now, we know that Jacob is referring to this brother that was later on named Israel. All right? His name changed to Israel, and he had 12 sons, and his 12 sons make up the nation of Israel. So a nation or two nations came from this woman's womb, like it tells us in this chapter. We're not going to read it. You can read it on your own. So one of the nations was called the nation of Israel. The other nation was called the nation of the Edomites. We already got that in Genesis 36 chapter. All right, read it on. Uh, and his name was called Jacob, and Isaac was, four, was three score years old when she buried them. And the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter. Once again, more characteristics of this dude. A cunning hunter. Cunning means uh, clever or skillful. The type of cat that's got duck hunting, call, uh, duck, duck calling things when he hunts. He has the pheromones he puts on to attract certain animals. He knows what season is this, what season is that. He knows how, how to stand. He knows how to lure these certain animals in so he can trap them. He's a big game hunter. It says a man of the field. And according to Matthew chapter 13, verse 38, the field is the world. So it means that this dude was going to be a man of the world. I mean, he's going to be all over the globe, like the Jacques Cousteau's, Marco Polo's, or any other explorer, uh, Leo Afri- Scipio Africanus, any explorer that you could name, man, they're who? All the so-called white people. So this is the characteristic of this dude, Esau's nation. It says, and Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents, and Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob. It says, And Jacob saw potted, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with this same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom, which means red, because he was eating this red pottage. 
And we find out, you go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, read it on your own, that the pot of pottage was red because the meat was not fully cooked, therefore it was raw. So it still had blood in it. So these people, this nation, they eat red meat that has not fully been cooked. You know, they ask for their steak to be medium cooked, medium rare. They eat steak tartare. They like eating raw meat. There's only one people on the face of the planet that does these things. And this is the so-called white man. These are facts. Anyway, we did all of this so we can go back here and read this again. So going back to uh, the Homer's Bible Atlas dealing with Antipater. It says, Hyrcanus was the weaker of the two brothers, although he was high priest. After a military defeat, he was ready to surrender his cause when an Idumian saw a white boy, a white dude. Now, remember, these are all black people. The Israelites are people of color. So you had this Edomite, this white dude, intervening. Now, remember, I brought it out last class that the Hasmonean dynasty had forced converted these Edomites into Judaism, all right? And Antipater was one of them. So this is how he was able to get so close to the Hasmonean dynasty. So it says, after a military defeat, he was ready to surrender his cause when an Idumean governor named Antipater intervened on his behalf. Antipater, the father of Haroi, or Har- Haroy, uh, how do you say the dude's name? Uh, he was his daddy. Haroy the Great was from, was from a line of Idumean governors who served the Hasmonean dynasty. I told you. Antipater, recognizing the opportunity to become a power broker, <laughs> a power broker, so that's what, what his term came from. You know, you read about the power brokers on Wall Street. It says, back Hyrcanus, securing the aid of the Nabean king, Artius III, the poi works. Artabulus was defeated and put on the defense. So, John Hyrcanus II defeated his brother with help, with help from Antipius, Antipater, this Edomite, this white boy. It says, the Jewish civil war came at an empty. Uh, in operative time, in 64 BC, the Roman general Pompey captured Syria and threatened Palestine. And I believe we got that last week out of from Babylon, 10 book 2. It says supporters of both Jewish factions appeared. You had us in a civil war fighting, uh, were fighting one another. You had the people that backed Artabulus. Then you had the people that backed uh, John Hyrcanus II. So we're going against each other. It says supporters of both Jewish factions appealed to Pompey. So we appealed to a foreigner. This is a no-no, y'all. So we bickering and fighting amongst each other, and we appeal to a foreigner? Listen, man, this is what Christ taught us. Matthew chapter 12, verse 25. Matthew chapter 12, verse 25, and it reads, 
And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. <laughs> you hear that? Desolation means destruction, means waste. It's going to be a wasteland. He said, Every kingdom divided against itself. We were divided against ourselves, and this was the fall. This was the end of our sovereignty or independence that we had for a brief period of time in Israel, in the southern kingdom. It says, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And we didn't. This was our fault. Verse 26. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? And the reason I wanted to get that verse is because we was rolling like damn adversaries of each other. And that's what the word Satan means. It means adversary. We were adversaries to each other. Come on, man. This dude, this lineage of the Hesmoni, they killed off their siblings and they killed their mama, man. Damn devils. And now we're going to another devil and asking him for help. And the Bible forbids, forbids us forbids us of this. Let's get First Corinthians chapter six. First Corinthians chapter six and uh, verse one two. It says, "There, there, any of you having a letter against another, meaning we got issues with each other." The Israelites, it says, and go to law before the unjust and not before the saints. We were supposed to take care of our differences in-house. We weren't supposed to go and and, and uh, get the help of a foreigner to come deal with something they don't really know about. Verse 2, do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, or ye unworthy to judge the smallest matter, man. This was a small matter that could have been could have been handled in house, but we were so wicked at the damn time, we do anything for our quest for power. And during our quest for power, what ends up happening? We lose our power. I'm gonna read it I'm gonna read it in um the Holy Bible Atlas Atlas going back there to read it again. It says the Jewish Civil War came at an inopportune time. In 64 B.C., the Roman general Pompey conquered Syria and threatened Palestine. Matter of fact, I don't think I got that love last week. Let me get it real quick. It's only like one sentence, y'all, but it goes right with what we read. About, from Babylon to Timbuktu, y'all. Uh, give me a second. I'm trying to find it. I think it's page 90. No, it's not 90. Page 86. Page 84, here it is. It says, in the year 65 B.C., the Roman armies under General Pompey captured Jerusalem. 
So this goes hand in hand. What we just read out of the uh, Romans Bible Atlas. I mean, this part again. The Jewish Civil War came at an inopportune time. In 64 BC, the Roman general Pompey captured Syria and threatened Palestine. So he also captured Palestine in the same year we just read out of from Babylon Timbuktu, page 84. In the year 65 BC, the Roman armies under General Pompey captured Jerusalem. All right. Going back to the Homer's Atlas, it says supporters of both Jewish factions appealed to Pompey for help in deciding the matter. Pompey favored John Hycranus II to the charring uh, of Archibulus. So he sided with John Hycranus II, and remember, John Hycranus II was being advised by Antipater the Edomite. All right, it says who resisted Pompey's decision. So Archibulus, John Hyrcanus' brother, he, did, he wasn't cool with the decision to give power to John Hyrcanus II. And because of that, watch this, Pompey marched on Jerusalem in 63 B.C., seized the city, and established Hyrcanus as high priest. See this? So he put Hyrcanus II in command, because remember, the high priest was also the king back in these times. And it says the era of Roman rule over the Jews had begun. Why would it say the era of Roman rule? Because Tipiter was really the power. He was the power. And what they had done was they turned uh, Jerusalem into what's known as a client state. When you have a client state, you set up uh, a, a, a person to watch over that state because you can't be there. And that person that they have, they eventually was set up with the Herod, y'all. And we're going to read that as we continue. But I want to jump to Daniel chapter 7 because all of this was prophesied in the Bible. So let's go to Daniel chapter 7. Got a little time left. Day chapter 7, and let me see. So if you're unfamiliar with Daniel chapter 7, the chapter, Daniel names four beasts. The first beast was the Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar. The second beast was the Persian Mede Empire under Cyrus the Great and Darius. Uh, the third beast was Alexander the Greek, Alexander the Great. Uh, and the Greeks coming into power, and the fourth kingdom was the Romans, which we're dealing with right now. I want to get to so Daniel chapter seven and verse seven. After this, I saw in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and breaking pieces and the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. All right, so we're going to get to that, but let's take this out of the damn kingdom right, right now because it's talking about beasts. So let's jump over to, chapter, uh, to verse 17. Let's get what these beasts are. These great beasts, which are four, 
are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. Now, when y'all see it says four kings, kings represent kingdoms. So these four beasts or four kings or four kingdoms that was going to come out of the earth. All right, now let's go back to Daniel chapter 7 and read verse 7 again. After this I saw in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, so a fourth kingdom, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly. This is talking about the Romans, y'all, coming into power. It talks about how it was dreadful, exceedingly, and strong. It says, and it had great iron teeth. This is talking about the Roman legion, man. He was not trying to mess with Rome. Rome was bad. It says, it devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. So it's talking about all the kingdoms and nations that it had conquered. So Rome had conquered the Babylonians. It conquered the Persian Medes. They had conquered the Greeks because they had wars with the Greeks, which way they would go on to be victorious over the Greeks, and they would take some Greek territories. And I alluded to that last class, and we'll get into it further in this class. And it was diverse from all the beasts, meaning it was different from all the other kingdoms that were before it. And it had ten horns. The ten horns were the nations that they had under tribute. And I'm going to get into that also. So let's go to First Maccabees now, y'all. <clears throat> First Maccabees chapter 8. And I read this, I think, week before last, but I got to go back to it to get some understanding on how powerful Rome was and how uh, what we're reading in Daniel coincides with First uh, Maccabees chapter 8. Starting <clears throat> verse 1, and it reads, Now Judas had heard of the fame of the Romans, that they were mighty and valiant men, and such as would as would lovingly accept all that joined themselves unto them and make a league of enmity with all that came unto them and that they were men of great valor. It was told him also of their wars and noble acts which they had done among the Galatians and how they had conquered them and brought them under tribute. You see this? This is what Rome did. They would bring nations under tribute. Those what we just read about in Daniel about the ten horns or the ten powers that they had. Verse 3, and what they had done in the country of Spain, you don't say, for the winning of the mines of the silver and gold, which is there. Y'all remember the movie The Gladiator? What did they call Russell Crowe's character? The Spaniard. So this is history, man. They presented in the movies. We just be too ignorant to, to realize that it's, it's factual. A lot of this stuff we see. Some of it's false. Verse 4. And that by their policy and patience they had conquered all the place, though it were very far from them, and the kings also that came against them from the uttermost part of the earth, till they had discomfited them and given them a great, the rest did give them tribute every year. Going back to the ten horns. The nations that supported Rome that were under tribute, verse 5. Besides this, how they had discomfited in battle Philip and Perseus, king of the of the Chittims. Now, Chittim is talking about modern-day Italy, y'all. That's Chittim. 
So it's talking about them uh, taking control of Italy. See, and this lets you know they they will not be indigenous people that was there already. It says, which others that lifted up themselves against them and had overcome them. Verse 6, how also Antiochus, the king, the, I'm sorry, the great king of Asia that came against them in battle, and this was Antiochus III, having 120 elephants with horsemen and chariots and a very great army was discomfited by them. And this, these were the Greeks that was fighting against the Romans. It says, but the, the Greeks lost. And this is why you read in the first chapter of Maccabees that uh, Antiochus, his son, the fourth Epiphanes, was being held a hostage at Rome because Rome, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Greece had lost the war against Rome. Verse 7, and how they took him alive and con, uh, covenanted that he and such as required, um, he and such as re, uh, reigned after him should pay a great tribute and give hostage, hostages and that which was agreed upon. And the country of India and Media and Lydia and of the good, goodliest countries which they took of him and gave to King Eurmenes. Moreover, how the Grecians had determined to come and to destroy them, and that they, having knowledge thereof, sent against them a certain captain, and fighting with them, slew many of them, and carried away captives, their wives, their children, and spoiled them, and took possessions of their lands, and pulled down their strongholds, and brought them to be their servants unto this day. Verse 11. And it was told him besides, how they destroyed and brought under their dominion all other kingdoms and isles that at any time resisted them. Verse 12. But with their friends and such as relied upon them, they kept enmity, and that they had conquered kingdoms both far and high, or far and nigh, insomuch as all that heard of their name were afraid of them. Also, that whom they would help to keep to a kingdom, those reign, and whom again they would, they displaced. Finally, that they were greatly exalted. Still talking about the Romans. Yet for all this, none of them wore a crown or was clothed in purple to be magnified thereby. Now remember what it said in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 7. It says that this fourth kingdom was diverse or different from all the rest because Rome didn't have a king. They had a senate. This is what he's talking about in verse 14. Verse 15. Moreover, how they had made for themselves a senate house. I just said that, right? Wherein 320 men sat in council daily, consulting always for the people to the end they might be well ordered, and that they committed their government to one man every year who ruled over all their country. This would be their Caesar or their modern-day president. And that, all, and that all were obedient to that one, and that there was neither envy nor emulation among them. That ain't true. Verse 17, in considering of these things, Judas uh, chose 
Epolemius, the son of John, the son of Akos, and Jason, the son of Eleazar, and sent them to Rome to make a league of enmity and confederacy with them, and to entreat them that they would take the yoke from them, for they saw that the kingdom of the Grecians did oppress Israel with servitude. So this was Judas Maccabees when he was living, uh, forming a treaty with Greek, and I went over this. Uh, I'm sorry, forming a treaty with the Romans, and I went over this. But the reason I'm reading it is because it plays an integral part in what we're going over in Daniel about Rome being the fourth kingdom because it's got its characteristics to a T. Verse 19, they went therefore to Rome, which was a very great journey, and came into the Senate where they spake and said, Judas Maccabeus with his brethren and people of the Jews have sent us unto you to make a confederacy and peace with you and that we might be re- uh, registered your confederate and friends. Now, where are we at? How far do I want to read with this? Uh, I think we got enough of that. I don't got to read all of this. Yeah, so just showing the characteristics of the fourth beast and Daniel, how Rome had uh, tributaries up under them. Now, let's get... Uh, Hold on for a second, y'all. Where are we at? Where are we at? Just right here. All right, here we go. All right, this is from mtm.edu, y'all. And the headline reads, it says, The Roman Empire, Brief History. And we're going to jump down to the uh, the Republican Rome, 510 to 310. It says, Rome entered its Republican period in 510 B.C., no longer ruled by kings. The Romans established a new form of government whereby the upper classes ruled, namely the senators and the Utians, or knights. Excuse me. However, a dictator could be nominated in time of crisis. In 451 B.C., the Romans established the Twelve Tables, a standardized code of law meant for public, private, and political matters. Rome continued to expand through the Republican period and gained control over the entire Italian peninsula by 338 B.C. And I already read that. It, it was the Punic Wars from 264-146 B.C., along with some conflicts with Greece, that allowed Rome to take control of Carthage and Corinth and thus became the dominant maritime power in the Mediterranean. So the Punic Wars were fought, if you don't know, uh, with Hannibal and uh, the Carthaginians. Hannibal was a Carthaginian, which is in Africa. But uh, upon further research, Hannibal was an Israelite, y'all. He was Jake, but he was an Israelite. All right, reading on, though. It says, soon after, Rome's political atmosphere pushed the Republic into a period of chaos and civil war. 
This led to the election of a dictator, L. Cornelius Sulla, who served from 82 to 80 B.C. Following Saluda's registration in 79 B.C., the republic returned to a state of unrest. While Rome continued to be governed as a republic for another 50 years, the swift, I'm sorry, the shift to imperialism began to materialize in 60 B.C. when Julius Caesar rose to power. Okay. Yeah, I got to read this. It says, by 51 B.C., Julius Caesar had conquered Celtic Gaul, and for the first time, Rome's borders had spread beyond the Mediterranean region. Although the Senate was still Rome's governing body, its power was weakening. Julius Caesar was assassinated in 44 B.C. and replaced by his heir, Gal Julius Caesar Octavius, Tavian, who ruled alongside Mark Antony. In 31 B.C., Rome overtook Egypt, which resulted in the death of Mark Antony and left Octavia as the unchallenged ruler of Rome. Octavia assumed the title of Augustus and thus became the first imperial emperor of Rome. All right. So I got all of that, y'all, to show Rome coming into power and the beginning of the Caesars. Now, let's read uh, Second Ezra chapter 12. I'm going to read Daniel real quick again, though. It's uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 7. After this I saw in the, the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly, and it had it devoured and breaking pieces and stumped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns or ten powers. We find out those ten powers were the, the ten nations that the Romans had under tribute. Now let's get Second Ezra chapter 12, which goes right along with Daniel, y'all. So Second Ezra chapter 12, and let's start at verse, uh, where I want to go. Let's start at verse 10. Yeah. So this is uh, Ezra's vision that the angel gave him. So first he gave him the vision, he came back and gave him the interpretation of the vision. This is the interpretation. And he said unto me, this is the interpretation of the vision. The eagle whom thou sawest come up from the sea is the kingdom which, which was seen in the vision of thy brother Daniel. You see this? So he gave, this angel was giving Ezra the same vision that Daniel got, but Daniel didn't get the characteristic of the fourth beast which was an eagle. Because y'all remember, the first beast uh, that Daniel saw was the, uh, let me see, then you speak saw in night vision, behold, the four winds, the four, yep. And, yep, it says the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. This was the griffin, which was the uh, Babylonians. And then he says in another beast, verse 5, like uh, a second beast, like unto a bear, 
and it had rays upon its side. So this is the Persian meat empire. Verse 6, after this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard. So this was Alexander the Greek coming into power. Now, the fourth beast, and this characteristic is not mentioned, but it is mentioned in Second Ezra. I'm going to read it again. The eagle whom thou sawest come up from the sea is the kingdom which was seen in the vision of thy brother Daniel. Now, what's significant about this, y'all, is because the emblem of the Romans was the eagle. And I brought this out before, man. There's a movie they made called The uh, the Eagle, something about the eagle. But it's, it's, it's talking about the Roman Empire. Y'all go back and do y'all research, man. Y'all go back and watch the movie Gladiator. The, the flag that they had had an eagle on it. Rome is the eagle. So it's talking about the Roman Empire coming into power. But let me read on, though. But it was not expounded unto him. So Daniel wasn't given this. I'm in verse 12, y'all. For now I declare it unto you, or unto thee. Behold, the days will come that there shall rise up a kingdom upon earth, and it shall be feared above all the kingdoms that were before it, like it's supposed in Daniel. Now watch this, verse 14. In the same shall 12 kings reign. <laughs> How many? 12 kings. One after another. Now watch this, y'all. Because how many kings it said that this kingdom was going to have? Twelve. Now, this book right here is entitled The Twelve Caesars. <laughs> you don't say. Let's find out who the Twelve Caesars were. It's from the table of contents. It says the first Caesar, Julius Caesar, the second Caesar, Augustus, the third, Tiberius, the fourth, Caligula, the fifth, Claudius, the sixth, Nero, the seventh, Agalba, the eighth, Otho, the ninth, v uh, Vita Lewis, the tenth, Vespasian, the eleventh, Titus, the twelfth, Domitian. <laughs> this is the twelve Caesars, man, that belong to what kingdom? The Roman Empire, y'all. Come on, the Bible's a bad book, man. All right, let me read this again, verse 10. I'm sorry, not verse 10. I was in verse 14. In the same shall 12 kings reign, one after another. Remember, in, Rome called their king Caesars, which is another term for king. It says, there, whereof the second shall reign, I'm sorry, whereof the second shall begin to reign and shall have more time than any of the 12. All right, so it says that the second king or the second Caesar was going to reign longer than any other uh, Caesar in Rome. And who was that guy? That guy was Caesar Augustus, who changed his name. Let me read it. It says, ancient Rome, Rome's longest-serving emperor, is Augustus, who is also the empire's first emperor following the death of Julius in 44 B.C. Augustus was born Octavia, and he was the great nephew of Julius Caesar, who adopted him and named him as his successor. Octavian changed his name 
to Augustus when he succeeded Caesar after his assassination. He did, he did not become emperor immediately, but reigned from 16 January, 16 January, 27 B.C. to 19 August A.D. 14, a whopping 40 years, seven months, and three days. The Bible told us this, though. Come on, man. It's a bad book, man. I'm telling y'all. Y'all better read it. I'm going to read it again in the Apocrypha. Uh, verse, what verse was I in? Verse 15. Whereof the second shall, shall begin to reign and shall have more time than any of the 12. And that's Caesar Augustus, y'all, or Augustus Caesar. Verse 16, and this do the 12 wings signify, which thou sawest. Y'all see how, how he's dropping this prophecy, man? It's all an allegory, but now he's telling them what this is really talking about, man. Bible's a bad book, I'm trying to tell you. So this is the Roman Empire coming into power. You ask, well, what type of power? What does this got to do? With what she was talking about with Antipater and the Hesmonian dynasty has everything to do with it, y'all, because this was the beginning of the fourth captivity that the Israelites was going to go in under the Romans and the Romans coming into power and the sovereignty of the Israelites being taken away from them by this cat Antipater. Now, let's go to the book, Who's, Who is Esau, Who is Edom, page um, 7, y'all. Page 7. I look a couple, yeah, about four minutes, five minutes. Uh, page 7. John Hyrcanus conquered the whole of Edom and undertook the forced conversion of its inhabitants to to uh, Judaism. To Judaism. To, J, to Judaism. So John Crenus conquered the whole of Edom, so the Edomites, the Idumeans, and he forced them to convert. That's important. Remember that. Thenceforth, the Edomites became a section of the Jewish people. Thus, at this juncture of time, the Edomites were then incorporated with the Jewish nation, and their country was called by the Greeks and Romans Idumea. Mark chapter 3 and verse 8. So let's get that real quick. Uh, Mark chapter 3 and verse 8, and it reads, And from Jerusalem and from Idumea. All right, no doubt. So still talking about the Edomites, their nation. It says, And their country was called by the Greeks and Romans, Idumia, Mark 3 and 8, uh, Ptolemy's uh, Geographical, or geograph, geographic, uh, Geography, 16. It says, But the tide turned in favor of the Edomite faction, and Julius Caesar made Antipater an Edomite for, for Cractor of Judea in 47 B.C. When Antipater was killed, four years later, his son, Herod, gained power, but was rejected by the Judites. 
Herod shrewdly gained the support of Rome with a Roman army at his heels, he returned to Palestine. And after a six-month siege, he captured Jerusalem and became king of Judea in 37 B.C. So this is Herod the Edomite becoming king of Judea or king of the Jews. And this happened, like, a, like the book said, in around 37 B.C. Now, y'all, we are out of time. I am sorry. I had a lot more information to get to. But uh, we will definitely get to it next week as I continue this topic, uh, Never Wax Pale, um, the end of independence for the Southern Kingdom, y'all. So I want to thank everybody for tuning in. I hope y'all got some information, some good edification out of the class. Uh, if you have any questions dealing with the class or any biblical questions, you can hit me up at 314-482-9110. The Wada Mishawa for hooking up the broadcast. The Wada, thank y'all for y'all support, y'all listening. And until next week, Lord willing, tell a friend to tell a friend to tell a friend to please tune in to Tell the Power Tuesdays, Tell the Power Tuesdays, Tell the Power Tuesdays every Tuesday. And with that, y'all, I'm going to say Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.